And tonight we'll be moving into the mind itself, how to directly contemplate the mind. It's start, starting to get moved much more into Vipassana-type work. Okay, anything on anyone's mind? Any questions? Or did you learn anything about feeling? Learn anything about using the breath in order to contemplate feeling, to help you do that? Really anything whatsoever. Where were you keeping the breath while you were uh, contemplating a particular feeling? Um, it was just an awareness of it. It wasn't a particular clear. It was the, the sense okay. of it, this. Okay. But, but now that's much sharper, the breath in everything. I'm noticing that it's starting to be hard not to be aware of the breath. I understand. Um, as in so many things, there are different views on this. So I'll, I'll give you them, and then what I would suggest is you work it out of your own experience. Uh, in all the remaining contemplations, we're going to really be focusing on something other than breath. Feeling to begin with, but we'll be working with the mind, with impermanence, with letting go, etc. Uh, and still breathing in and breathing out. Whereas up until now, in a way, the breath has been central. I mean, we've been focusing, certainly the, the first four contemplations is mainly a samadhi practice. We've had the breath pretty much as an exclusive object, picking up a little bit of learning about how it conditions the body, for example, if you can think back that far. Yeah. When you had a body, remember? First four contemplations. Um, so now we're... we're Actually, this, the Anapanasati Sutta follows the Satipatthana Sutta. Uh, I don't mean this to be too academic, it really isn't. Uh, the core, all the practices, whatever Vipassana teacher you've had, whatever retreats you've done, Joseph, Sharon, Jack, Krista, you, everyone, Goenka, it all comes out of the Satipatthana Sutta, believe me. Okay. Contemplation of the body, contemplation of feeling, contemplation of the mind, contemplation of what are called dhammas. And Anapanasati follows that. The, the main difference is that it uses the breath throughout to help you. Uh, Satipatthana simply means to arouse mindfulness. The four uh, extraordinary uh, arousings of mindfulness. Okay, so now we're moving into, let's say, feelings. Okay, how do you use the breath? Well, some people will say, um, stay at the nostrils. You've been, if you remember, some, uh, you probably have a bit more experience with that now, right? I'm assuming you do. And so they would say throughout, now going all the way through to the remaining, to finish up all 16 contemplations, stay with the breath at the nostrils while contemplating whatever it is you're contemplating. 
but there's another way. Now, Buddha Dasa, who's, who I've learned the most from about this in Thailand, feels that, but he also makes it clear, uh, and I'm happy he does, otherwise I would have to go in a somewhat different direction, that it's not an absolute. And so what some of you may find is that where you pick up the breath is not necessarily limited to here, but you feel it just as you described it. And I, I don't want to tell you, but if you notice, if you read uh, some um, Teach Not Han's commentary, there's, in no place does he tell you where to attend to the breath. Now, in one sense, that's hard on people because he's not giving you any help. In another sense, it's closest to the way the Buddha taught, because the Buddha doesn't say. Where. There are people who have opinions, but to me, it's all views and opinions. And they'll interpret it, this word or that, but basically the Buddha does not spend any, or let's, to give some people the benefit of the doubt, very little time telling you where to put your attention on the breath. He just says, breathe in and breathe out. Clearly, it should have something to do with the nose, at least once in a while. Right? Or is that too opinionated? Okay. So, um, again, the test is pragmatic. If the way you were describing it is happening naturally and holding your attention and actually enabling you to carry out the mindfulness of the feelings in a, a deeper and more sustained way, great. Uh, and some of you may want to just stay up here. Now, one, one view is that once you get this established, then there's a certain power you have up here. And so that joins whatever you're contemplating. You just, but I've done both, and I've done both a lot to test them to see. They're both, they're, I don't find, you know, they each have, they vary from time to time, but the main thing is if your attention is there with the breath wherever it is, then it's, it could be helpful to investigate whatever it is you're investigating. So if you like, you may start off with it at the nostrils, but if you already know that when you examine something else that you're with the whole breath or wherever, my question would be, does, is it happening? Or is, is your attention... Uh, uh, does that hold your attention? Are you interested in it? Finally, I would say what you're interested in is going to make the most difference. No matter how many experts tell you you should be here, but if you're not interested, at a certain point it becomes manual labor and uh, medicinal. So that what's most helpful is you, if you genuinely are interested, and that can take you the furthest. Okay, anyone else? Uh, Anyone have any feelings in the last two weeks? <laughs> Anyone breathed? Or, yes? Oh, you mean daily life, too? No, right now we're talking about the sitting. But you mean for daily life, you mean what I just said about how to... Yes. Yeah. That is, uh, for uh, let's say when you join the breath with whatever you're doing, yeah. yeah, I think it's very much an individual matter. And beyond that, some people do better being mindful without using the breath as an adjunct just straight being mindful of what they're doing. I want to make it clear, I think I've said it a few times, this is not saying that Anapanasati is the supreme, the only way to, nothing, nothing like that. If The whole point is to be mindful of what you're doing. And if being with the breath helps you do that, great. Mm -hmm. so it seems a lot more natural and just happening a lot more. 
Is it helping you to, to stay awake and in, and in touch with the moment? Yeah. Great. And, and, and I'm aware I'm breathing also, the way you said. Um, most of the time, and the, the only odd thing is that it makes me feel that before a lot of the time when I was with the breath and daily life, it was a really subtle form, although I did feel it a sort of suppressing life. So you'd be looking out, and you'd be thinking, you oh, I'm looking at bread and surface, I'm aware, I'm with the breath. But in fact, it would be a way to shut out the world. And, and to be aware of it in sitting really has broken that down. Can you tell me how that happened? How, what do you mean by how uh, being aware of it in sitting has broken that down? I don't know. It just seems that now I, I, I ah. happen to notice God. I'm actually... Yeah. You know, okay. I think I understand. Let me yeah, make up... You're looser? Well, I think you can use being with the breath in a, in a weird way, as a way of sort of shutting out everything. Yeah. Okay. Sure, but yeah. No, no, no. You're absolutely right. Let me make up an example, because uh, this, uh, this actually happened. Let's say uh, a number of us went, I'm adding on to it for teaching purposes. Three quarters of it happened, <laughs> and, one quarter, and one quarter is total fabrication to, uh, so that we can learn something. I don't think the people who were there that night will care, frankly. Okay. A group of us go to a, a restaurant to also hear a concert. I've forgotten who it was now. It was a while back. Uh, Richie Havens. Okay. And so we're in the, it's like a restaurant where he's going to perform. And we came to hear him. You know, they were all refugees from the 60s, and we wanted to hear him again. Okay. So we go into this restaurant, but what we didn't count on, it was packed, full of smoke, crowded, loud. You know, it was just, and we were all, you know, very precious meditators <laughs> coming from IMS at, towards the, at the end of a retreat. Uh, so we didn't count on that. So there were a number of, uh, we were sitting there, and the concert, he wasn't going to, do what he was going to do for easily an hour and a half to two hours. So in the meantime, ordering a meal and just being in this uh, inferno. You know? So there are a number of options. One is to leave. No one took that one. Another one, which a few people took, is to just do what you're suggesting, is just tune everything out. That's one choice. You, and you can clearly use the breath that way. You're just sitting there and tune everything out, just be with the breath and get nice and calm and happy inside. And that's one thing to do. Of course, it also tuned us out. In other words, the person who was, you know, uh, we disappeared along with the rest of the restaurant, so the person <laughs> might have well been in the Himalayas, you know. Okay, so that's one solution. Obviously, I don't favor that one. Because we need practice in making, in making the practice real. In other words, to making it of one piece with life. Because we're not always in retreat centers. Okay. The other option, which is uh, a little bit different, you're still using the breath to help keep you, it can have a very soothing, balancing effect. But while you're doing it, you're listening to the people that you're with, you're talking to them. So it's helping you, it's an unpleasant situation. But the breath is helping you stay awake in it. And what you're learning is how to maintain your composure in a situation that is not of your liking. To, to maintain equanimity, even though you'd rather not be there too. So you can leave, you can disappear, do a disappearing act using meditation, 
you can immerse yourself in the situation using medit taking it on the very negative features become desirable because that's the way you train yourself to be at home in the world the world is always going to be a pain you know so often it's just not going to be the way we want it to be have you learned that yet I mean, it's, at a certain point, you have to understand the world doesn't care. It just doesn't care. It just keeps rolling on the way it wants to roll on. And you can either get flattened out by it as it rolls over you, or you can't change the world, I mean, in that sense. But what you can do is learn how to use the practice so that, in effect, it's a different world. But, but the only way is you're changing yourself. You're changing how you take the world. The world is the same world but you work with all these reactions, always trying to get away from unpleasantness, always trying to get to pleasantness. Sure, when we can do it, but often we don't have that choice. Okay, now, let's say using the breath in daily life. You know, I, I don't want to legislate. It's really for you to learn. Let's say you're waiting for an elevator or you're sitting on the T, uh, you know, on the, uh, in the, yeah, in the T. And if you want, close your eyes and be with the breath. And for many people, that's how they're doing it. In other words, they're using the breath only in very protected situations, social situations. Waiting for a bus, waiting for an elevator, sitting on the T. So there's, there's no real challenge there. I mean, it's just, you might as well be here. Because you can do that. No one's going to care. But, and that's good, too. And it may, sometimes you get your energy back if you, if you need that. But there's another use of this of anapanasati in life, and that is, I think, what you're saying. And that is, you bring it with you into, into ordinary life, just as it is. But again, the main thing there is the breath is not being used to tune out things, but actually to see things more clearly. If it is ugliness, fine. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And I think the tuning out can be pretty, pretty strong. I, mean, I, I don't think it felt very good. It was really like, I'm not going to be in the teeth. <laughs> I understand. Actually, we need, it's nice if we can do both. In other words, if you want to drop out and, and it seems like a good time to do that, there's nothing, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But it's also, of course, helpful if this practice doesn't make us more of a misfit than we were before we ever heard of the practice. Yeah, I don't think that's the goal, you know, is to become even more of a square peg in a round hole and call it spiritual. Yeah. Anyone else? Um, Anyone do any work on Vedana feelings? Now remember, there, you know, if you recall, in that whole section, it had to do with piti and sukha, or is it deep, which come out of deep samadhi, deep joy and deep peace. But the contemplation of feelings also includes suffering, dukkha, painful. You know, we all have it. You all, it's one of the most frequently asked questions on retreats and for beginners, and beginners here means years. Uh, what do you do when you're sitting your body starts to hurt? And you probably never have gotten a satisfactory answer because there isn't one. I mean, you know, there are ways of working with it. So this is another one. Let's say if you've had any dukkha, physical dukkha, did you, were you able to focus right in on it, but staying in touch with the breath? And if so, did that help you? Was that any more beneficial than whatever other way you used to, you're used to working when you have physical discomfort or pain? Or just any, anything in the body? Yes. When you uh, when you when 
It's less likely to be mine. Less likely to be mine. Exactly. Exactly. The, uh, the breath is, uh, uh, once you get to learn to use this, it's a way of short-circuiting all these identifications, and you, en- and you really start to understand anatta. You'll start to see that everything's just happening, and no one owns it. The process is happening. And the breath is one way to help you do that. It's helped you to see that it's just feelings. What are, happen- what are happening right now is feelings, painful feelings are happening. It's not saying it's an imagination, a hallucination. There are painful feelings. And by staying with the breath, it minimizes that getting lost in it. Is that what you're... Absolutely. And that's, I would say, a central way in which it's supposed to help us. Great. That's what we're supposed to be... How how it's valuable. See, it it minimizes unnecessary thinking. And, of course, two of the most unnecessary thoughts, in one sense, are I and mine. This is my, my knee that hurts. Poor me. I hate this. And soon, I'm getting out of here. And soon, I'm driving in my car away from that center that made me have a a painful body. And soon, you're out of the practice altogether. (laughs) The same thing is true of emotional pain. Yes. And to to piggyback on what you were saying a few minutes ago and your comment on it, and in being with one another with emotional pain, which is what I do all day, being Mm. with people, and having the breath be there, it, it really gives the emotional pain the space to be there. Now, you're talking about other people's emotional pain? Uh, yes. To, well, I'll go back to where you were with the yeah. first comment. Okay. In terms of one's own uh-huh. emotional pain, it refers to what Sarah was saying. Yeah. It's the same thing as physical pain. Yes. And then, to go back to what you were saying previously, in being with someone else, and, and it goes back to the conversation you were having about blocking things out, Mm-hmm. rather than opening and softening to them. Mm-hmm. And when, when, at least for me, when I'm very aware of the breath being there, when I'm sitting with someone, and there's tremendous emotional pain, it allows that just to be there. Okay, now, Which, here's where I'm back to the same question. I think I'm hearing you. I hope so. They're having emotional pain. Yeah. Right. Now, what the breath will help you, help you to do is for your response, the way you... you t- not to block it. Yeah, in other words, to allow you to receive their emotional pain, yes, and, perceive and, it. Ex- and to allow it to be there. And, and what happens then is it increases the connectedness among us, yeah. between us or among us, yeah. which is opening for all of us. Yeah, it's like the restaurant situation. Yeah. That is, if everyone stayed open to everyone, we all would have had a better time. Exactly. Yeah. But if people start shutting down, then it becomes like Mom. this. <laughs> yeah, no, sure. Anyone come getting back to the same question? I'll ask it all until 9.15. Has anyone contemplated Vedana feelings during these past two weeks? I don't mean to be like a schoolmaster chiding, but I have to know what's going on. I know that sometimes you're too serene to answer. And I don't know if it's that or, or what. Yes, I am. I am. <laughs> too serene to answer? No, we contemplate Okay, so anything? Mm-hmm. And what ha- often happens is I, the beginning is the peace, and then mine comes in, and I become very sidetracked around the peace beginning to happen. One of the out 
crop into that, which has been good. I, I think it's been real good and helpful to me, and has shown up in other areas, is um, an ability to say, this is my experience right now. Mm-hmm. So even if it's mine coming in and seemingly, which is another aspect of mine, ruining it, I say, this is my experience right now, and my ability to join that experience, even for a short time, mm-hmm. is something that I've never been able to do before. Right. So now, does the breath help you do that? Yeah. It, because it's designed to. Mm-hmm. See, at a certain point, if any of you experience it as a unified field, it's not like, I'm being with the breath, but I'm being with my left big toe, which hurts. After a certain point, it becomes a, a unified field. Of it. Well, Mm-hmm. The, the language of I and mine and me is perfectly good as long as we understand that it's, it's language that, and it has relative truth. Uh, anatta is a much more profound doctrine. It has, noth- it has no gripe with ordinary language saying, you can say I and mine. The question is not the word I or mine, it's whether that emotional uh, possessiveness comes in and creates something. If, if you're free, you can say I and mine all day and it's not a problem. Mm-hmm. Then it's doing its job properly. That's good. Now the thing about PT starting to pick up and then you get distracted. Because it's a very joyous feeling. Yes. To have, even if it's just a moment, to have that uh, unity. Okay. When you have the whatever degree of of it you have, does it um, give you a feeling of wanting to practice more? I. I mean, I just, I'm at the point in my practice where even though there may be resistance coming up, I'm Second honeymoon. <laughs> there, are many, there are many honeymoons. Because, you know, there's always the first one when you first, wow, Vipassana. <laughs> but then that fades out, and then... Oh, yeah. But I, then I, it I, comes back at, an, at increasing levels when you suddenly realize, wow, Vipassana. No, it's, it's true. Sometimes I say, this is happening, something really... I've had happening. quite a few honeymoons already. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, some of that is simply as your samadhi gets stronger, the PT will get stronger, because the samadhi, this PT grows out of the samadhi. Now, what can help, and this is also part of our... Per- Go ahead. But then I see, I also see, well, there's still enormous periods of leaving. Yes. And, and still, I think my work is to not be over the critical. Okay, but well, you can all bring in something that probably... I, uh, let's say most everyone in this room is familiar with, and those are the hindrances. Yeah. See, the I hindrance... use it as proof. I use it as proof that I'm not doing Okay, but that itself is a hindrance. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one thing that can help is that you start to see if there's a particular hindrance, for example, that's uh, problematic for you. Mm-hmm. Let's say uh, one might be the first one or the, the third, whichever one it is. Because if you can begin to identify that, let's say, it's anger and ill will that comes up a, a fair amount. We all will have a, a sample of all of them. But let's say one in particular, like, um, and it varies from person to person. So let's, once you identify that, let's say you see that anger and ill will is coming up a lot. Angry at yourself, angry at other people. And that, of course, it uh, undermines your samadhi and bye-bye to piti. So, what, if you identify it, you see it's fairly substantial, 
then you can uh, pick a specific antidote like metta and uh, work with that much more because that's going to neutralize some of that anger. Okay, that's a, that's a that's a, a good way to, to look at it. But um, what I'm talking about is a metta practice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a systematic metta practice where if you realize there's a lot of anger and will, ill will, then that would be a, see more and more as you go on, uh, a number of these tools can be used very creatively, and in and individually you become resourceful and self-reliant, and you'll know that this is a time when metta would be good for me. And you might use it in every sitting or even devote uh, uh, bigger chunks of time to do metta. And then as that, let's say, smooths out the anger and ill will, well, then when you go back to the samadhi practice, because you've used that antidote, it will be easier to get into samadhi because you've smoothed out what was the main obstacle to it. Someone else that might be skeptical, doubt, and so forth. And so, now the other thing, of course, you can use, which is also a remedy, is vipassana, that is, insight into, let's say, whatever it is you're saying, let's say some form of anger or ill will, and just to see it as, uh, as an impermanent phenomenon. That means you now temporarily you've left the breath for a while and you're investigating because it's, it's keeping your PT from really growing because it's keeping your samadhi from growing. So fine, you set aside some time, you investigate it and you see it arise and pass away, you see that you don't own it, it doesn't have your name on it, you know, the anger and ill will, you just watch it come and go. It loses, that takes the energy out of it. So it loses some of its potency, then you come back to your samadhi practice, which might be a bit stronger because you've weakened the hindrance. And because it's stronger, the piti, the joy, is a lot more likely to come. And as that is sustained, out of the joy comes sukha, or peace. Does everyone follow that kind of sigha? It's just a, and more and more, it's like being a musician. You learn how to orchestrate what you need here and now. And and many of you are at a point where you should start uh, seeing your practice that way, as flexible, and as you giving yourself the interview and deciding what you need at that point. If you like, check it until you develop confidence in your own judgment. Right. That's all right. No, we can't go. We we all need to go over this until it's go ahead, until it's ours. Follow through. Go ahead. What do you mean by see if you're having if you're doing a samadhi practice, basically you're always coming back to the breath time and time again. But what I'm saying, if it has become a problem, and you see that it, that its potency is undermining you, then it calls for attention. Then you temporarily leave the samadhi practice, and either cultivate its opposite, like metta, if it's anger and ill will, or investigate it. One thing that I was doing, which I didn't mention to you, actually I've stopped in the last week or two, is when I saw that come up, remind myself about non-harming. You know, 
know that it was um, a precept not to harm, including myself. Okay. And that would help me let go. Okay, that's a ni- homemade a- antidote. That's good. But there's a, there, and I realize there's a lot of sadness about the people being lost. You know, there's, there's just like this struggle in that space where the people come up. So, okay, what do you learn from that? See, there's a lot of wisdom in that one, potentially, if you extract it. There's a lot of wisdom juice in that one. I think I haven't haven't been with the sadness. I mean, I realize that I'm under it, but I think there's a level of not wanting to feel that sadness. But let's go closer to the event. That is, you have some PT, and then you lose it, and you get sad. Oh, detachment. Yeah. It's not a small thing. That's what that's what so, our prime. So it's all right that it that it comes up and then something else comes in. Well, everything's all right. It's it's a a question of see we have opportunities to learn when things go wrong. In quotes, we can still learn because we can see. Oh, look how I'm. You don't have to suffer because your PT falls away. Well, and there's also this whole system of what I think is supposed to happen. You know, the PT supposed to stay. And okay. That again is. Exactly. Okay. In those moments, those, those outcomes are proclaiming the Dharma. They're teaching you. They're saying, look what's happening. See, it's all cause and effect. You're seeing it right in that moment. You're seeing what's happening. Now, it's good to learn that because the more we see instances, that we have to learn this lesson maybe hundreds of thousands of times until it becomes so clear that we don't want to do that anymore. Or we can't do that anymore. That's all. See, what we're learning how to do is, let's say if... if um, now remember, in the samadhi practice, we disregard a lot of what I'm saying. we coming back, coming back. But if it's a problem, then it's like a fire breaking. Supposing a fire broke out in this room right now, would we want to put it out two weeks from now? <laughs> uh, you know, or, really, or a month from now, or even an hour? You want to put the fire out right now because, you, you know, let's say my mat is on fire. Right now. Okay, now what we typically do with our personal problems is we suffer and then, you know, we go to our therapist, maybe you don't have an appointment till next week. You know, and so like, last week when I was in the hall and I, my, my cushion caught on fire, but I'm talking now about something a little more valuable than the cushion, you caught on fire. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, so we want to learn how to put the fires out right there. <laughs> and there's more of eating the meal, but there's also the knowing of the difference, much more. Yeah. Put some, you know, sugar on the menu, it tastes a little better. <laughs> Sometimes that's all I, I, I have at that moment to eat. That's what I'm doing. I know. Yeah. Good. There's more, there's more peace about that than there ever was. Anyone else? Okay. Um. I find it as a really stressful day. Mm-hmm. And I'm home and, and we do this real slow walk and it just, it's just like that. 
We're moving into the ninth contemplation. Please keep sitting. Stay with your breath as you listen. It reads, I'm breathing in and I'm aware of my mind. I'm breathing out and I'm aware of my mind. The yogi practices like this. This ninth contemplation has to do with knowing ourselves. And the goal is to know the mind as well and completely as possible. That is, at a given moment, what is the mind filled with? Now, in general, and one way to practice is simply to be with the breath and be openly attentive to the stirrings, the the movements of the mind. This contemplation is best done to the degree to which samadhi is developed, that if your mind becomes more and more steady and concentrated, then a subtle object like the mind can be heard. It's it's a way of listening, listening to what the mind is really saying while breathing in and breathing out. And so one thing you can do is quite simply to just sit and you're seeing all the psychological functions of the mind, imaginings and likes and dislikes and so forth, parade through the mind, float through. And it gives us an opportunity to get to know our actual mind from moment to moment. Traditionally, there's one way to begin to familiarize yourself with the mind is to not just sit in such an open way, but to have some guidelines. And I'd just like to familiarize you with one set of such very basic ones. And here it would be the kilesas that we've talked about from time to time. The first one would be what is called raga. Sometimes it's called raga tanha. And the question here is, does the mind have lust or is it free of it? Now here, lust doesn't refer exclusively to sexual lust. It means the wanting to gather towards, to pull in, to hug, to hold, to grasp, to collect, anything money, houses, food, people, could be ideas. You could tell that this one is at work when there's a wanting to get, to gather, to pull towards oneself something. You can feel the mind doing that. Now at this moment, 
as you're breathing, please open up to your mind and listen. Listen very carefully. And see if there's any raga in it at this moment. And if so, get to know it. We're not trying to do anything to it. Should, for example, some uh, kind of wanting, you could call this the wanting mind, it's always wanting something. We're just trying to get to know it while breathing in and while breathing out. Of course, as you do that, in addition to getting to know what is filling up the mind right now, and if it's, if it's uh, this wanting, then see that. And if the mind is free of that, if there's no wanting in your mind right now, other things may be happening, but you can see that the mind isn't trying to gather something towards itself. It's not trying to pull or hold. Then contemplate that. Just know that the mind isn't doing that. Get to know the absence of raga. Now, over time, as we do this, this particular tendency of mind causes a lot of suffering. And as we practice anapanasati, we find that we're able to control these tendencies of mind, control it in the sense that we make the objects weaker so they become less powerful, even powerless, and have less ability to condition us. This grasping, as we get to know it, has less and less ability and power to condition us. So there's less clinging, less attachment. Something we'll study more in a specific way later on. Please do that just for a few minutes more. Is the mind wanting anything? And if not, contemplate that, whatever that is, while breathing in and breathing out. And if this is best done with the breath at the nostrils, please do that. It's best done with a, a more open to, approach to the breathing that seems to help you carry out this contemplation and do that. Use the breath to help you stay relaxed as you listen in on the mind. Please don't strain. If there's a lot of strain, Usually what that means is more samadhi work is needed. But for tonight, let's just get a feeling for this. No matter what level of calm we have available to us right now. Learning how to breathe and directly and thoroughly experience our mind at work. Sometimes what you'll find is that as you're breathing, being with the breathing and attending to the mind, there's nothing there. 
just becomes empty and clear. Fine, that's what's there. Contemplate that while breathing in and while breathing out. Traditionally, using these guidelines, a second kind of topic that you can look for in the mind, examine to see if it's there, has to do with what is called dosa. And this has to do with the mind's tendency to be angry, to have aversion, hatred, any kind of dislike in the mind towards a person, towards a situation, towards a thing. If the mind feels oppressed, if it feels irritated, if it feels offended. So the essence of dosa is it doesn't like, it doesn't want, it pushes away, it knocks away. And so at this moment, if your mind is not wanting, is not liking, is pushing away, in short, if it has aversion or aggression towards anything, yourself included, contemplate that while breathing in, while breathing out. Or contemplate its absence, the absence of those qualities. Again, the listening is designed to help us get to know our own mind in a given moment. To get to know the mind as completely and as thoroughly as possible. Now let's contemplate whether the third major kilesa that we've heard about, we've already touched on, in a sense, greed, hatred, and now delusion or confusion or unawareness. This has to do with the dark or confused quality of mind. doesn't know what's right, or doesn't know what's wrong, or doesn't know if it's doing the practice correctly, or basically it's running around in circles, perhaps in conflict, perhaps feeling ambivalent, hesitant, unsure of itself, doubting. not sure what's happening. And so here, as we've already done, we get to know this. We get to know the mind of unawareness. If it isn't present, then we contemplate its absence. We contemplate just what's there.
Other categories that were used and still are used traditionally might be as you look into the mind to see how collected it is. Is it scattered or is it concentrated? Now, the mind has been happening all along as we've been going from the first right up to this contemplation, but we haven't, we can't help but miss, you can't miss the mind's actions in every contemplation we've been doing. But right now, we're directly looking at it. In a sense, we're looking at our own psychology, our own personal psychology. Other categories that can be looked at is the mind attached to anything at this moment. Is it in a extremely fulfilled state or just a very familiar, not so fulfilled state? What I'd suggest during the week is to really work with this a lot. Now, if any of the, particularly the kalesas would be very helpful because they're so basic, just getting to know them, sitting and seeing if there's any greed, hatred, or delusion in the mind. It doesn't have to be done in the way in which it was just mentioned. You can just sit and see if any of it's there, or just sit. Just breathe and get to know what's in your mind. Now, realistically, this contemplation doesn't fully happen unless the mind has got a sufficient samadhi. It's got to be pretty calm to be able to, without straining, uh, listen in on the mind for extended periods of time. But it's good practice to do it at whatever level your samadhi is. And what I would suggest is, let's say in a typical sitting, begin with, let's say, following the breath at the nose or any of the particular techniques that you may feel help you to settle down and become calm. And when you feel you have uh, some degree of collectedness, then just open up to the mind while breathing in and breathing out. You're still with the breath. Only now you're really interested in what is, what is the mind filled with now? What's there? And you contemplate it. You get to know it. You listen to it while breathing. Okay, any questions about what we're moving into now? Yes. My experience just now is the uh, mind, you know, sort of traditional mind being very still, not a lot of sort of little... What do you mean traditional mind? Well, the, the thinking mind. Okay. Uh, was not any kind of continuous strain of thought, but right. a little lift of things again, sort of like they get classified and then they go away again. But I did notice, it seemed that my mind was kind of going to feelings in the body. And uh, would, that, would, that, would you classify that as the grasping? No, that's... The mind is grasping on to a physical sensation, and, or is that a different... Well, no, yeah, no, you drifted into uh, Vedana, the feelings. But then again... See, uh, feelings is also, uh, technically, it's a a mental event, Vedana. This one, in a sense, is everything but that. However, if there's the grasping that we talked about, it's not just the feeling. See, that's the... If it's just, let's say, feeling unpleasantness... Well, there was an absence of mental content to grasp onto, so there was physical Yeah, it's the grasping part. Yeah, that would be this. So that whatever it is, if you feel the mind is... Uh, lunging or reaching out or trying to get something, yeah, it's that part that would be the men- that we're contemplating here, and it's always some object, and it could have been 
the body or feelings. But right now it's that, uh, especially if you're taking the, the kalesas as your guide, which you don't have to, although what do you think is going to be there anyway? You know. So sometimes it's helpful to just have an official agenda. Uh, but yes, yeah, that, that's good. again. It's pretty straightforward. I'm breathing in and I'm aware of my mind. I'm breathing out and I'm aware of my mind. The yogi practices like this. You know, if you think of bird watching, this is mind watching. Only you're using the breath to kind of help you do that instead of binoculars. You just you're, you feel you're in touch with the rhythm of the breath wherever it's best for you to do that. If you have if you're not sure where, go to the nose. And while you're doing that, it's a kind of naturalistic observation. Instead of birds, you really what, what's happening now? What's in the mind? And often what happens is when you look, the mind will slip under a rock. I mean, it hides. It, there's nothing there. That's all right. That's what you're contemplating then. The mind is, that's what the mind is filled up with, but it won't last. Will it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Rosemary? I find it confusing a little bit to distinguish between um, feelings of sadness and unhappiness and the caresses of aversion. Yeah, um, you don't have to worry about that. That is, the, the, let's say, greed, hatred, and delusion. Where would you say what you were feeling was? Hatred. It doesn't have to be hatred. It can be. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes, but no. Here, here's. Uh, let me make the. Uh, let's really look at the at feelings in a very uh, microscopic way. What what feelings feelings have to do, let's say is contact, let's say with a sense organ or let's say the body. There's some sensation in the body. The feeling is that immediate sensation. Let's say it's unpleasant. The fact that it's unpleasant. Doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily follow that you're going to have aversion to it, although by and large, unpleasant things condition the mind to, to want to get rid of it. Pleasant things condition the mind to want to grab on, hold on to it. That's the power that those, uh, that those feelings have. Now, what we're really doing is we're breaking that link with a very, very gently. We don't need any strong instrument. Now, so that let's say by and large you, you're feeling that, Whatever it is you were feeling, can you remember what it was specifically? It was an emotion. It wasn't a physical Okay. Now remember, emotion, an emotion is not a feeling. This, let me be clear about this in Buddhist psychology. 
Buddhist psychology makes a distinction between feelings and emotions. Western psychology lumps it all in together. The feeling is just that immediate, there's contact, and then that contact produces a feeling of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. It's going on all day long. Emotion is a much more elaborate psychological uh, function that builds up on it. Or is it, the feeling is just pleasant. Let's say a sound comes in from outside, hits my eardrum, my, and let's assume my ear is working, so the sound comes in, and consciousness and the sound, it comes together, and, let's, and then there's that immediate, let's say it's a, a fire engine. There's, it's like that. It's sort of, you might experience it as unpleasant. So that's an unpleasant feeling, period. Now, if then the mind goes into some, elaborates upon it, proliferates about it, let's say your father was a fireman, you know, or, you know, I don't know, whatever it was, and suddenly there's a, something else, there's sadness, and that's not the feeling, that's, then we're into an emotion, and that's more properly in this one. Now, when you're doing the, really, finally, you see, this is training, and the, one of the most beautiful uh, phases in practice is when you've done a lot of practice and you can let go of the training wheels and all the, all the you know, the aids and the specific uh, themes to contemplate and, and just, you just are just awake. And it's, it's all concrete, it's all together. The, all 16 contemplations are really in every moment. Let's say, let's say a breath can be long or short and it can also be pleasant or unpleasant, and you can all, it's also impermanent or not, and it also lacks self. So it's just in each contemplation we're uh, coming at reality from a slightly different angle. And as we move through the 16, especially if you've done it, if you've done it let's say, on a retreat and very thoroughly, at the end you then, uh, it's sort of like practicing basic moves in, let's say, fencing or dance, ballet or piano. Uh, you know the base of martial arts, and then at a certain point, because you've mastered those, you throw them away, and you're just, you're spontaneous. But often, years of hard work go into really being spontaneous. And then someone sees you, oh, you're just so fresh and spontaneous. But they haven't seen uh, all the work that's gone into that. Yeah? I'm sorry I wasn't here at the beginning. We just reviewed a bit of what, yeah. But that's why I'm sorry, because oh. Okay. Um, for purposes of this sutra, now the joy and happiness are different. I didn't want to get into all this, but um, their feel uh, that is um, the joy would be more of, a, of an, a mental event outside of this sutra. <laughs> it's really not that important, but. For purpose of this sutra, it's classified as Vedana. In other words, the, the PT is. Yeah. You know, at this point, what's most important is really just be very open to your mind and see what's there. See what's going on. And one good guideline is really seeing, is it grabbing for something? Is it pulling back or aggressing towards something, or is it kind of waffling and confused and uh, 
circling around, a little bit lost. See what, see what the mind is up to in a very innocent way. How about, I'm, I don't feel confident that I know how it's going for you. Uh, were you able, whatever you were doing just now, to stay in touch with the breath? And if so, was that, did that help or did that hinder the whole process? Exactly. It's what Sarah said earlier. It's the same, very same thing. That's, that, if it does that for you, then it's a big help. Uh, and you're practicing Vipassana, you're just using the breath to help you do that. And if it doesn't for you right now, that doesn't mean that it won't. That means you may have to try it a little bit longer, as, at least for the length of this our work together. But some people find it very, very helpful, and it becomes very uh, a central part of their practice, even their exclusive practice. And other people don't, so that's all right. You know, then other people just prefer to just be mindful of, just watch the mind without being concerned about the breath. You know, if the breath comes in as part of that, fine, but not using it. And other people, it can make an extraordinary difference. Uh, personally, the mind is not an easy thing to watch, and so the breath is very helpful in trying to do that. It can be. Anyone else find, have any reaction to that? At that point, you probably slipped into delusion. See, in other words, because it, you know, it was starting to proliferate, and that's what. It, so now the mind's not sure of itself. Let's, wait a minute, what's going on here? I, you know, so at that point, it, this is not to condemn you. Say you're a bad person, you're a deluded person. At that point, it's just that the mind was more. It, what seemed to be the best way to characterize this is an unawareness or a confusion. Maybe confusion is a, speaks to us more. And so even any of those reactions, they, would, they themselves would be... See, a lot of what we're doing here, it's really thought-watching. You know, you're really hearing what the mind is, how the mind spends its time, how it spends its day. What does the mind... How does the mind spend its day? You know, just what is it thinking about it? And is, is it constantly hankering after something or pushing things away or doesn't quite know how to spend its day? Or what's going on here? Yeah. Um, I had 
I do think that the, when you watch your mind and it starts analyzing, that's really the biggest trickster. That means you get caught in it? Yeah, it either goes, because it either turns it into um, hatred by analyzing for self-replication, I think of that. Or if I had something then, it's often a confusion, and I'll start smiling, or else I don't get it, so it's delusion. Yes. I have never seen analysis work very well. Okay, but here you don't have to... When I start doing it in a sort of suspicious manner, that's one thing I've learned is is kind of kind of go off and do it somewhere else. Well, where else is it going to do it? Well, I mean, it just does it, and you don't necessarily, you know... Yes. Okay, but okay, that's the key one. The believe in it. We're not trying to stop it from doing it. We're not. We're not at war with, with mind. Okay, but if you hear, you're all touching on it. Everyone here has touched upon, it, including yourself. You're at the threshold of finding out that you're not your mind. See, because uh, but we keep getting sucked in, and so. You know, I am whatever it is. Now, what uh, what you're doing, the breath is designed to help us do that, is to free ourselves from the tyranny of our mind. That's what the whole practice. Why are we suffering so much? Most of it is we're doing it to ourselves. Let's say uh, the last few days, someone put it. It's not liking someone who was. I don't want to. That person is driving me up a wall. This lady said many times, here at the center, about someone else at the center. She's driving herself up the wall. You know, she's using that lady to drive herself up the wall. That lady's not driving herself up the wall. That lady, the other lady, who was just doing what she was doing, and the way she did it drove this lady up the wall. So our language is all filled with, like we're this helpless, passive, you know, well, I'm just a fine person, but this person comes in, and what do they do? They drive me up the wall, you know. The other person who was the, you know, who was the culprit, according to this other, other other person, she was just doing what she was doing, and this person didn't like it. She didn't like things done that way, arranging the food that way, uh, being so fastidious, uh, saying, okay, that's enough, whatever it was. And the, the person who was bothered was keeping it all inside, and she kept talking about it. After about the fourth or fifth time, I said, I had to tell her, you know, I said, like, she's not driving you up the wall. You're driving yourself up the wall, you know, and you can come down off the wall any, at any moment. It's up to you. And that's what self-knowledge is about. It's putting out the fire right there in the moment. Now, what she was doing was, there was a fire, and instead of putting it out, she'd come to me. Please go to that form of the breathing. That mode of practicing which best enables you to calm, to come to calm and steadiness. Any of the techniques that we used in contemplations one through four, be fine.
I wanted everyone to gain experience working with the breath at the nostrils. Either at the nose tip or the upper lip. Because for many that's a very useful way to help the mind settle down, become calm and eventually one-pointed. However, there are individual differences. And so if you know that for you, for example, the whole breath, any one of the ways in which we work with the whole breath, practically speaking, through your own experience, through your own personal practice, has helped you come to calm more quickly, more surely, you're more interested, you're more drawn to it as a breath object, then please feel free to do that. So in this first part of the sitting, and this can be a typical way of working, you might even want to move through the contemplations, especially if you had more time on your own, just move through the contemplations, giving whatever time is necessary. But even if you should decide not to do that, quite simply to pick some mode of practicing with the breath which helps the mind gather all of its disparate energies together, which helps the mind converge around the breath in one form or another. And for many, if not most people, the nose tip is best. But you know from your own experience what works and what helps you, and so trust that now. We left off at the ninth contemplation. I'm breathing in and I'm aware of my mind. I'm breathing out and I'm aware of my mind. The yogi practices like this. And if you recall, it was suggested that during the week, at least during some of the sittings, you have a bit of an agenda as you look at the mind. One useful way of doing this, which has been done for a long time, is you work through the kilesas. These toxins of the mind, pollutants. those aspects, those energies of mind which keep us from the simple purity that's already there. And so the first contemplation might be seeing if there's any grasping, any kind of signs of craving, accumulation, reaching out for, 
accumulating. some of the commentaries, the, the term raga is used for this. One equivalent term for us would be lust. But the lust is not limited to sexual lust. It's some compelling need to grasp onto, to pull towards one. person or money or house or food or anything, just that energy of pulling and grasping. And so we look at the mind, and if the mind has any of this, it could be very mild and subtle or it can be quite powerful and obvious. We're aware of that. We're aware that the mind is filled with raga. If it isn't there, then the contemplation is simply knowing that. Whatever is there, it isn't that. And we simply contem- contemplate the mind being absent of this tendency. Look into the mind for just a few minutes and see what's there. Ideally, this contemplation is undertaken only when the samadhi is pretty stable. very steady level of concentration and calm. But for the time being, just to get a little bit of experience and to get our feet wet, whatever level of calm or concentration you have, listen in on the mind itself directly. This contemplation, the ninth, has to do with self-knowledge. Getting to know our mind as it actually is, from moment to moment. Now familiarizing ourselves with the content of our mind, regard to the second major kind of kilesa, this tendency to have aversion or to avoid or to aggress, <coughs> aggress against. So in one where the one we just finished is a 
a pulling towards, a grasping, a reaching out, accumulation. And now it's more pushing away, getting away from. If there's any of that in the mind, contemplate it. If there isn't, know the mind as being absent of it. Feel what it's like to not have that energy dominating the mind. on now to see if there's any what is called delusion in the mind. Perhaps the simplest way of talking about this is a kind of running in circles. Confusion, conflict, hesitation, puzzlement, bewilderment, a kind of darkness. Not sure if you're doing it right. See if the mind is filled up with any of those kinds of energies. And if it is, contemplate them directly while breathing in and while breathing out. If that isn't the case, then contemplate the mind, a mind that's absent of those tendencies, free of those tendencies. In the last few minutes of our sitting, Drop any particular agendas or schemes. Rather have a very open broad approach to the mind. In this ninth contemplation, a lot of what we're really interested in is psychology psychological phenomena that make up the mind, that keep coursing through the mind, coming and going, coming and going, liking and disliking, the different moods, happiness, sadness, irritability. The mind will be scattered, then it will be calm, concentrated. And so just be open to the flow of content in the mind and see what the mind is filled up with from moment to moment. While breathing in and breathing out. A lot of what is happening in this sense is the coloration of the mind. 
often moods, coloring the mind first one way, then another way. Here we're using the breath to keep from getting caught up in these moods, to keep from identifying with them, keep from getting sucked into them, and just allow them to come and go and to be known as they do. We're still in the ninth contemplation, looking at the mind directly, being especially interested in thinking. Listen to the mind, do thinking. as if it secretes thoughts all day long and even at night. In our sleep, these thoughts come from nowhere and race through the mind, chasing each other through the mind. Really listen to the mind doing thinking while breathing in, while breathing out. Thoughts are particularly subtle forms of energy and have the power to cast a spell over us very easily. And so we often get lost in thinking. And if the samadhi or the calm is not sufficient or adequate, that's exactly what will happen. We keep identifying with thoughts, getting lost in them. But as the mind develops in its ability to be steady and just attend, just listen, let the thinking do all the work. Our job is simply to listen. You'll find that a, a quality, you probably already have it to some degree, this quality what is called sati bala, the power of mindfulness. And this power is that it takes the energy out of things. So you may find as you aim your attention, <coughs> at the process of thinking, the thoughts hardly come to see the light of day. You can even feel the intention of a thought to arise. And the power of mindfulness takes the energy out of it and never even appears. It just is gone. So sati, or mindfulness, becomes a kind of sword. Even though our attention is aimed very gently, especially as sati becomes a kind of power,
you may find that as you aim your attention at thinking, there isn't much thought to listen to or to contemplate while breathing. That's fine. Don't worry about that. Just be attentive to what's there and stay very, very alert without any tension to the movement of thought while breathing in, while breathing out. Just breathing and listening to the mind. If you're doing this contemplation at home, on your own, if you focus your attention and attempt to hear what the mind is producing, if you find that you're getting caught in it a lot, identifying with the thoughts rather than just listening to them, this is a very strong tendency, and temporarily stop the contemplation (coughs) and return to your samadhi practice, just being with the breath itself alone, calming the mind, steadying it, concentrating it. When you feel that that's established, And once again, you can then resume the contemplation of the mind while breathing in and breathing out. Can you see that thoughts are just thoughts. Kind of rootless, homeless beings that come and go constantly. Can you really say that you own them, that they belong to you? say that you are any of them. Are you making it happen? Are thoughts simply thinking themselves into and out of existence? appearing and disappearing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.